In order for shame to be rendered powerless in our lives, we must be witnessed. We must be seen. Your gifting is going to seem like things that are just very obvious. They're going to seem like, well, everybody can be this welcoming, but everybody can see that moment where I just saw it. It's going to feel like anybody could do it. And that's what makes it your gifting. Watch how people avoid the face of somebody in need or asking who makes you uncomfortable. Every one of those faces reveal God. We have to remember our past and recount the things that God has done for us. And then that gives us faith to keep going to where he wants us to be. Guys, welcome back to the Anson's Podcast. I'm Blaine. And I'm Sam. I almost said I'm Sam. You did. You did. I I actually (laughs) felt it in the room. And today, we're finally going to talk about sorcerers, magicians, pagans, how they're different, what that is. And the reason we are is because— I brought popcorn. <laughs> we couldn't think of anything else. <laughs> so well, the you, reason why is because you've been starting every episode talking about this for story. the last several months. And then we have to pull you out of the rabbit hole that you seem to be sliding down into and saying, no, 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 I can't go here. So we're due for a meta dragon. We are due for a meta dragon. And we're due for a, Blaine, what are you, what are you concerned that we are unaware of? And it was our episode that we did on Pixar. We're like, everybody loves Pixar, but you're like, you should be concerned yes. about some of the popular undertones yes. getting into Mass culture. The underlying mythologies. Exactly. Which are real. That's not the way I would have said it because those words didn't come to my mind. Yeah. Maybe I should start with why I'm concerned. That'd be great. What are you concerned about? I am concerned about the destruction of people. Both. Like in a war? I like am a physical war? Like with bombs and guns and sticks? I'm concerned about the frag. No, not really. Like the... the Zombie, like cranberries? Not zombie cranberries either. (laughs) I'm mostly concerned about the fragmentation of human beings. Mm. And you know the Meiji Restoration? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Sam. (laughs) Nice to meet you. So Japan, right? This is the famous thing that happens where... Clearly not that famous. Japan sometime the end of the 18th century, just closes the country, island, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, they close it, and then they miss out on the Enlightenment. (laughs) I mean, they miss out on everything. And finally, right about the time of the American Civil War, Commodore Perry rolls up to Nagasaki, and, you know, gumbo diplomacy forces the country open He's like, hi, you guys are open now. Yeah, hello, you're now open for business? Yes. And you had a bunch of medieval-esque samurai and a feudal-esque culture standing Mm -hmm. on the beaches looking at an alien civilization that had the Industrial Revolution. And Right. It's actually why a lot of the Eastern storytelling is obsessed with this particular moment in time. Because it was so bizarre to have the past and the future laid right on top of each other. Right. And my concern... With what Dad called a pagan revival recently, mm. the re-spiritualization of the world, the Christian Church is Tokugawa Japan. That's just been closed to the rest of reality. Mm. 
and the rest of reality is rolling into the harbor armed to the teeth. Oh. And that's going to be a problem. <laughs> that sounds like a problem. So. But I'm sure that they're nice. They are so nice. They want good things yeah, for people. Totally. Like hot yoga and Starbucks. <laughs> Maybe let's leave Meiji, which is the name of the emperor at that time, hmm. and let's go over to ancient Israel. All right, Miss Frizzle. <laughs> um, can the magic school bus go back in time? Is that a thing it can do? It's the magic school bus. <laughs> oh, <way>. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it could just like get smaller, be a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> Those are, yeah. I don't think they ever went back in time as far as I know, but it's the magic school <laughs> it's bus. The- so let's take the magic school bus from uh, Meiji Japan over to ancient Israel. Great. Here we are. Yes. The doors swing open. What are we looking at? We are looking at, I guess I'm going to do this in a really cool storytelling way. Yeah. People like stories more than facts. Okay. We're looking at a road through the desert. Okay. How do I know it's a road? Because it's not paved. This is the old King's Highway. Oh. You would know it if you saw it. If you're walking around and you crossed it, you'd yeah. be like, here it is. And this was a favorite. This is an old trade route. This was a way that Sumerians, Babylonians, Akkadians, Egyptians moved their armies around. This is one of the reasons that like... It sounds like a place I don't want to hang out very long. You do not. This is like, by the way, ancient Israel's geopolitical problem is they're on the old King's Highway. And so I'm trying to think of what the modern equivalent would be, but it's like, I don't know. If you live in the toll booth on the middle of a highway where everyone moves their tanks and all of a sudden one day you decide no tanks can cross this toll booth, you'd have problems. <laughs> and wow. so this road that you're seeing in the desert goes by the foot of this long mountain, this long, low mountain. And when Israel was kind of doing the exploration and the conquest, they took advantage of the road. And when they started to explore the mountain, they decided very quickly that they shouldn't go there. And they designated it the same way they designated the artifacts of the temple and the hidden knowledge that was going to be destroyed by the conquest. Okay, what is that? Karam. That sounds nice and intimidating. Isn't it a nice, scary word? It is. What does it mean? Oh, that depends on who you ask. (laughs) I'm asking you. Uh, It means forbidden. But it also, when people want to translate it in a way that feels good, like the objects of the temple, holy, would hmm. be another one, set apart. I think that forbidden is like the best one uh, because it captures the potentially hostile, the intrinsically intense, potentially dangerous nature of spiritually charged things. Hmm. And what they found on Mount Karam, Mount, Mount Forbidden, Mount Hermon, oh, ski resort there now, and another, just like The Shining, like where everybody dies there. No, it's not like that. Okay, they found shrines, lots and lots and lots and lots of lots of very old shrines, and lots of weird stories about what had happened. Gilgamesh evidently had been there at one time. Wow, remember him, the old guy, about and, as old as it gets. <laughs> He is as old as it gets. See, I do know a thing or two. (laughs) And 
I just pretend to wear my dunce hat. <laughs> I'm like back just, to like sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. I remember that class. It was like first thing we read was the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the next thing we read was first chapter of Genesis. <laughs> it's like it's going to be an interesting English <laughs> class. <laughs> okay, so Gilgamesh was there. So shrines, forbiddenness, people who are really interested in old nerdy mythopoeic stories like the Forbidden Mountain. That's your treasure trove. And significantly, it's probably the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus, of all places, when he's going to be revealed in his nature for a few minutes, he goes there. Hmm. He leaves, he leaves a region, a place in the country that was referred to as the Gates of Death and goes to the Forbidden Mountain. And I can imagine that the disciples who weren't asked to walk up the Forbidden Mountain were pretty stoked. They're like, no, seriously, sometimes we feel left out, but this time you go. <laughs> Peter, James, John. <laughs> I, you got this. You got this. <laughs> Take notes. We'll stay here in the Valley of Death. Yeah, kind of. Right next to it, there was a Roman city. So they went up, Jesus transfigures, and maybe let's leave that one there. You know that thing where you like kind of berate a story? You're like, so there's the Forbidden Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's like cut scene. Okay. That's our cold open. Yeah. And let's cross over to a story that I told before we started recording several weeks ago. Yeah. About Julius Caesar. Right. You guys, just for the record, Blaine is doing this whole thing without any notes. Like for those of you that think there's lots of podcasts out there where they just have all this like preparation and lots of little people in cubicles, like getting all their information together. Blaine is sitting here with a coffee cup. I do get to pick my topics though. So I mean, it helps, but it's still very impressive. So you're telling me about this is the the Druid. So this is the Druid. Let's go to, let's, let's bounce over to Caesar's Rome. These are like little assignments for the, for the former homeschoolers among you. Which I'm assuming there's quite a lot of, to be honest. Go find out why we call Greco-Roman culture a thing. Why did those two things, which are which were kind of separate in space and time, end up being thought of the same way? But we have a Roman Empire because we have Julius Caesar. Mm. We have Julius Caesar because, you know, one of the greatest generals of all time. We have we have him because we have the Celtic Wars, the wars with the Gauls in mostly France. Mm. And we have the Celtic Gaelic Wars, largely because a guy walked out of the woods. <laughs> and surely it wasn't that small of a catalyst. No, it's the interesting thing about the influence that characters like this have on sort of like how things happen mm-hmm. is that no, 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 why things happen is always like really complicated. Why did something happen in your family system? Sure. Probably there were a lot of people involved, relationships over years. But there were inflection points where the unique character traits of some of the people in your family, you know, turned the needle. There are people that can do that. Hmm. Well, this guy's going to turn the needle. And they kind of knew who he was, but this guy walks out and he rolls into Rome and... We can imagine, based on what had just happened to him, that he's probably covered in blood. He's probably very gaunt, pale. He's just taken a pretty incredible journey. And this guy has just survived one of the only, like, intra-Gaul battles that we know about. 
And the reason is they didn't, they didn't write down very much. So too busy fighting. <laughs> they, and then the rest of this podcast is where literacy comes from. <laughs> I know you'd love to do that. That's a college class you're going to teach someday. So gaunt, pale, bloody, um, tall. Yes. Gaul. Gaul. With something on his face. With the marks on his face of a druid. They're blue, right? Usually, yeah, they're blue. So like that kind of blue face paint thing. But not like always. Like in Braveheart? Uh, yeah, like, the, like Braveheart. Oh. Um, imagine, imagine that, but permanent. Or, you know, they would look different, like scars or something. There was a King Arthur movie that I really liked in high school where like. The one with Keira Knightley? Yeah, I liked it because the, what's his name? Mads Mikkelsen, is that his name? Who plays Generoso's father in Rogue One. Yeah. Yeah, he's in that movie and he has a hawk and he has little eye tattoos. Mm. And yes, ever since I saw him, I think when I was like 13 years old, I was like. This is what druids look like. Everyone who is worth anything has little eye mark tattoos. (laughs) He looks so cool. So this guy is a weird spiritual figure. And he rolls in and for some reason he's allowed to talk to Caesar and the leaders of Rome, which somebody freaky like that shouldn't get past the gates. You I know? know. You'd be like, hey, here's this crazy looking person wandering out of the woods who looks so intense. And if I'm the guy guarding yeah. the gate, I'm like, nah, thanks. I'm not like, hey, you should come meet our, our leader. Exactly. But he does. Yeah, he does. And he goes, hey, listen, you know, civilization usually sheds like a approximately 30 mile light, let's say, beyond its most distant outposts. And after that, you don't know what's going on. And he's like, out there beyond what you know is happening, there is a war going on. And there's this massive human migration going on. And he manages their, you know, Caesar wanted to take advantage of this. Other people wanted to take advantage of this. But he manages to get the fight going. and Get Rome and the empire involved. He manages to get Julius Caesar, who he probably knows, presumably they'd met before, and he knows that Caesar wants to fight, and he's he's a master manipulator, and he's able— He goes down in history as being a master manipulator. He goes down in history as being a master manipulator because Rome's other master manipulator, Cicero, becomes really interested in Devicicius, this— the name guy. they give this druid. They give him the name that just means Avenger. And huh. uh, you're it's like, intense. Yeah, it's very intense. So he it kind just of, sounds different than the latest Marvel movies when, you, <laughs> when it's devicitious. And here you have a spiritual figure, fundamentally spiritual guy. Yeah. You know, walk out and manage to contribute to something really destructive. And people wonder, like, why did he do that? What was his plan? And know what he was doing. His people had just lost this battle. And that kind of, that's kind of what makes him Avenger because he was going to go get support. But this guy was not an idiot. This guy was very shrewd. Some of his conversations with Cicero are, are recorded. And it's like, what was that guy's vision of reality? And what did he think he was doing? Mm. You know, here in the de-spiritualized West, we do tend to sort of bake things down into material causes. We actually have, we have a vision of humanity that's not sourced in experience. That's like, it's a ladder product. And then we take it back and we 
force everything through it. So we've we've made our own mold, and then we force stories through that mold. Yeah, and we're like, so the mold that we force, for example, Devakishis through, is human cultural preservation, the basic instincts. And you go, no, 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 mm. no, that does not track onto the story. Mm. That's not how he understood himself. That's not what he did. That's not how the people who knew him read him. Yeah. Another way of phrasing it is there's been a big push, which I appreciate recently, that I, at least I've been aware of, of really trying to read the Bible in its context. Yes. There's just been years and years and years and years, hundreds of them, thousands of them, of it kind of getting further and further away from its context. And now we, I remember lots of youth group nights with like an 18-year-old getting up to talk about how this all applies right now and it, how it sounds right now. And there's just no no unpacking of context or words or anything like that. And so I think we're getting we're getting more used to, oh, I shouldn't just project that mold of the current onto the past. You can see how that would be a problem. Yes. That's what, what you're pushing for here. I'm noticing, and maybe this isn't helpful, but echoes of the story of Rasputin, actually, in oh. this druid. And there is a Catholic writer who... I can't remember his name, and I'm sorry. We might put him in the show notes. But he did a chapbook on the conquest of Cortez and really like reframe that in the different light. And I thought it was really interesting. He did a piece, another one on Rasputin, that again, I think most everybody kind of knows the name Rasputin, and yet you do a little bit digging. And it's really interesting how powerful, spiritual, force enters effective yeah this guy was very intentionally but essentially what he accomplishes is he dismantles the last christian hold on what was what had later becomes russia completely destroys the the czars and does so very very intentionally yes uh, i think that both of those guys are great examples um you know cs lewis called them magicians I like the word sorcery better. I think it's more accurate. But I, I, would, I would put those guys into that bucket when I say the, new a- the second age of the sorcerer, the second age of the magician. I had some friends ask me recently what I meant. And yeah, because you can't say something <laughs> like that and people be like, oh, sure, Blaine, I know what you're talking about. Well, they're kind of tracking with it too, right? Because they're going, do you mean the re-spiritualization of the world? Mm. Which is a thing that we've talked about. Do mm-hmm. you mean, you know, the exploding population of practicing witches? Is that what we're talking about? I'm like, oh, no. Okay, good question. I don't just mean the re-spiritualization of the world. I mean seeing, again, very old strategies, an incredible resurgence. Mm. So Balaam, who's the worst, is in this category. We talked about how scary he is. Yeah, I know we all know who Balaam is, but remind me who Balaam is. So Balaam is in the region of Moab. No, is he is a biblical person? He's a Bible person. Oh, yes. The, I've heard of this book. He's in the book of Numbers, which, by the way, we should all call by its old Hebrew title, In the Wilderness. That's a much better title. Isn't that cool? Yeah. You know why we call it Numbers? Because we like making the Bible really boring. Because there are a lot of numbers in the book. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like where they, they, they have you seen that somebody did this they kind of did like an Ann Sonsy vibe to the Bible like they made it into like this beautiful like magazine type like 
reading experience. Oh, cool. That I actually thought was like, yes, that, I actually want to like read that now because you've like made less text on the pages. And anyway. Okay. So numbers has a lot of numbers, but it's numbers not, has a lot of numbers. And Balaam's but it's there. Actually called him wilderness. I've heard he's got a great donkey. <laughs> I know he's he's talking donkey guy. Balaam, yeah, man, what an incredible story. The donkey part or the whole thing? So picture like Balaam is the only non-Hebrew prophet who's in the Bible whose other prophecies we have. So that's insignificant. It's very significant that he appears in the Bible at all. But he's this freaky historical dude. His there's a thing called the Balaam inscription uh, in an ancient Moabite city, which uh, we only have portions of. But if you ever if you think that the language of of the biblical prophets can be intense, I'm going to give you the the concluding verses of the Balaam inscription, the prophecies of people who are allied with other spiritual powers, which has this repetition. It depicts this war. It's this, you know, destructive prophecy, but it ends with something like, and I am coming and I am coming to devour your heart. Oh, thanks. I know. That's like, this isn't like, but I'm going to call you back and there will be rejoicing. There's like, there is, there just is not any of that. Mm. So Balaam is interesting. I think it's, man, you have this old, powerful prophet sorcerer hanging out in the desert who all wakes up one morning because there's a voice and he recognizes that it's the voice of a spiritual being, the uncreated God called Yahweh. And imagine Balaam sitting up and going, yes, what is it? Because Balaam was talking to the other spirits mm-hmm. and writing down what they said. And, you know, Yahweh tells him, Israel's coming and Balaam's heard the rumors about this people moving to the desert, destroying everything in front of them, with notable exceptions. And he's like, what do you want me to do about that? <laughs> and, you know, always like, I want you to go. The kings of Moab are coming. I want you to go with them and, and say only what I say. So Balaam kind of agrees, but the whole time he's scheming of how do I destroy this power? And he comes up with a scheme that he eventually feeds to the kings of Moab. Which was to get, he goes, you know, seduction. It's like, this is what we're going to do, okay? We can't stop these people. So I want you to send in your women to marry the men and then just slowly, like, you know, take them over. So tell me about the expression on your face right now. No, that's just, I think the Bible is super boring. And (laughs) this is way more interesting than I remember it being. (laughs) Um, Balaam, sorcerers, these guys, second age of the sorcerer, pause again and go, I think most of the people listening to this podcast have a fundamentally spiritual worldview that's rooted in Jesus. Right. Right? And it's like, we know who the God is who created the universe. We know the only uncreated, mm-hmm. the unique. And that God is revealed in Jesus and there's the Trinity and it works this way. In the way that you said, recovering the context of the Bible, you know, most Christians also believe in demons, which is the English ish. way. Yeah, maybe ish of saying- Some of the Pentecostals do. <laughs> right? It's like we have angels, demons. I think that just to be cooler- 
we should stop using the Greek word for messenger angel and we should use only the Hebrew one, malak, and be like, Jesus, we just pray that your malak would defend us tonight. That does sound more intense. Doesn't that sound cooler? Yeah. So, you know, we, we've at least got some of those spiritual characters. Yes. And some understanding, certainly here in the wild at heart sphere, yeah. that there's like a war going on and that some of these spiritual beings... I mean, we already told you before, go watch the Bible Project's YouTube series on spiritual beings. Very helpful. There are these fallen, depraved, bent on annihilation spiritual beings who are at war with God and the spiritual beings who have remained allegiant to him. And at the epicenter of that war, all these things are of like, people, do we know this? No, we all <laughs> on the same page here. And it's like, uh, well, how do you get at God? That's very hard to do. So you destroy his creation. You destroy the, the crux of the matter, humans. You try to make it so that God actually has to destroy them. That's kind of, that's a real interesting strategic part of the story. Mm. It's like, if I were to sit someone down and go, what was the enemy's like first strategy, the grand strategy of the kingdom of darkness before he had to change it? Because what it was, was trying to make it so that God had to destroy the universe. That's not something the enemy could do mm. and by corrupting it. He tried to force God's hand. God outwitted him. Mm. So in that conflict, you have these different, these different strategies. Yeah. And the sorcerer, the second age of the sorcerer, the second age of the magician yes. that we know of, is I think maybe the, just the significant re-emergence of one of those strategies, which is humans willing to partner with spirits, fragmented, internally destroyed humans, in order just to really try to mess stuff up. <laughs> mm. It's just fascinating that people are like, yeah, and you know, in old legends, how there's the wizard beside the throne. Yeah. How that's... That's a thing. As, yeah, as a thing, it's actually like a corruption of the ideal, which is if you were at the height of King David and you were allowed into the city of the king, into the palace, into the throne room, there would be David. And then beside him would be the prophet. Hmm. Uh, he would have the representative of the prophet counselors there with him, tuning into what God is up to, offering that as counsel and perspective and orientation. Mm -hmm. Picture the diabolical version of that, someone tuning into the strategies of the kingdom of darkness and trying to feed them into the world. Mm -hmm. That would be our magician. Does it back you up like a couple minutes here? You're assuming that, or at least the listeners of this podcast are all like, we're all pretty much on the same page for a lot of the spiritual narrative up to a certain point. Like I almost felt like there was going to be a but in there, but it didn't come. So I'm, I'm going to like interject it. Because you're saying here, there's this but of, are we aware of the, the strategy, the, the, the role that human beings who are more keyed in than we are to the spiritual world, the damage they can do, which I think is tying it back to your metaphor of the church being like Meiji Japan, where we're a little bit more innocent, a little bit less involved in maybe that whole world and that conversation. And so if this Gaul druid wandered in out of the wilderness, would we even know to be afraid? Yeah, thank you, Sam. That's perfect. I would say we're aware that there's this spiritual battle going on, kind of. And we think that, like, 
But it's up there. But God has messengers and yes. the enemy tempts people. And therefore it mostly exists kind of like in the ocean. You know, like that's a place I can go swim, but like I can basically never go there my whole life and be fine. Yes. And so that's breaking down a little bit because of the re-spiritualization of the world, right? right. You know, when dad talked about a pagan revival, paganism can basically be boiled down to having your spiritual capacities and senses open without being allegiant to Jesus and without the covering of Christianity. So very spiritual people, you can kind of create a big bucket and go, you know, everything from even, you know, like neurobiologists I read who are interested in capital L, capital F, life force. I'm like, yeah, I know what you're talking about, man. Hmm. Yeah, you're all in this Shadow bucket. Self. Yeah, where you're like, there's, you know, there's just something slightly beyond our senses. I mean, like, uh-huh. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to open your senses to perceive that? Right. Okay. Why? Are you going to serve Jesus and be under the covering of Jesus? Because if not, you don't want to be open to that stuff. Mm. That's the re-spiritualization. The thing that's, this whole conflict centers in humans and centers in the human heart, centers in people. Jesus is restoring people and then is equipping them to do his mission with him, right? So this is like, you know, the whole kingdom of priests thing, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you're now one of the intercessory spiritual brokers, but you're much more than that for the world, purifying the world, like establishing a good spiritual kingdom under Jesus. Well, not everybody wants that. And so among the human strategies, the sort of like people trying to do it for people, right? That's one strategy. Yep. And then I, the, the small bucket of people just wanting to mess stuff up. That's uh, a small bucket? <laughs> I, I, I think that most people don't end up there. I think they either end up in like the humanist bucket or the pagan bucket and that the small ones are people just trying to mess things up, the sorcerer or magician. Okay. These and are four so, different buckets. Got four it. different buckets. Two metaphor. big buckets, two middle buckets. All right. Okay. Yeah. And so I would go, hey, guys, the spiritual saturation of reality, that's the thing that we're seeing more and more, that the sort of, there's been the veil of modernity for several hundred years. That's kind of falling away, and people are wondering again, like, what do we do with just the spiritual side of things? Mm -hmm which is something that we've talked about before that, you know, Christians should pay attention to. I was reading good old Lewis and Chesterton recently, and it was fascinating how in mere Christianity, Lewis begins introducing Christianity by talking about moral law. He's like, listen to people arguing. Isn't it interesting the kinds of statements you'll hear them making? Chesterton does something similar, which is like since the Enlightenment, Christians have kind of prefaced the gospel by talking about original sin. Do you notice that people are messed up, that we're aware of a, a universal moral code and we're not following it? Well, mm. here's the gospel. Yeah. That's kind of new. The old way of the gospel would be like, you know how the world is intensely spiritual and you can be afflicted by your own sin, your own corrupt nature, and by other spiritual powers? Jesus can change all that. Mm. So... You know, Paul's sermon at the altar to an unknown God. He doesn't give the sermon on, you know, the altar to the universal moral order and the corruption of humans. Right? right. It's not a thing he does. No. 
So there's an incredible opportunity right now as people are like, whoa, there's a spiritual world. Be like, yes, there is. Right. We're getting more back towards Paul's sermon, right? You're going to be like, hey, here I am in a coffee shop. It's got an altar to an unknown God. Exactly. But people are responding to that in different ways. Some people are trying to ignore it. Some people are trying to embrace it, but have it kind of go okay for them, live a kind of materialist, spiritualized existence. Yeah. Right? And then some people are just kind of diving in and are down to partner with some of those spiritual beings who are opposed to Jesus. Sure. Probably more and more so in the case of this new revival of paganism and witchcraft and and all of that. Here's why I call it the second age of the magician and why I think it's interesting and why I'm like, wow, because you've identified the new uh, Rasputin Avenger Druid. Who is it? Don't say. I have suspicions. Oh, okay. But I'd go, aren't there always these people? And go, yeah. But honestly, After the fall of the Roman Empire, right, you know, 15 to 1700 years ago, they really go underground. Like somewhere in the Middle Ages, I'm just giving myself a huge bracket, like 1200s to 1400s, the Catholic Church in Europe actually had to have these monk scholars go out and and were like, we're getting reports of like witches. Can you go find out? who they are and what they are trying to do. And they came back and they, they produced this report called Malum Maleficarum. And even then, in a pretty spiritual, like three-tier worldview, medieval world, they were like, what are they doing? Who are they? And you have Rasputin characters. You do, you, you know, you have Merlin. You have like these spiritual, but they don't, they're not actually out for your best interests because they're not allegiant to Jesus characters. But man, they're in the shadows mm. on purpose. Mm-hmm. They're flying by night. And I think that's already ended and is continuing to end. It's ended and it's ending. The need to fly by night. Yeah. I think that the bid of the magician sorcerer, you know, is kind of spiritual anarchists who want to get power and mess stuff up and support whatever spirit it is that they're allegiant to, but, you know, it's not ultimately going to go well for them. What this means for the Tokugawa church yeah, <laughs> standing on the shores as the gunships roll into the harbor yes, is like, whoa, Paul, when this gets really boiled down, but when he's talking about unity in the church and then he has this line of like about the enemy and how we're not unaware of his schemes. When I grew up, that largely got baked down to the enemy is a divider. We know that his schemes all relate to dividing the church. So if we know what that is, we'll resist church division. Yeah. Well, if that's the case, then, you know. Well done there. Everyone. I was going to say, if we, w- you won't fool us, naughty, naughty enemy. But we still are going to create our own denomination because we view the Eucharist slightly different than you. Exactly. <laughs> but that's fine. That's not division. <laughs> They're just doing it wrong. That is, that is a funny observation to be like, if that was your one job, you got to say. Aces. Nailed it. <laughs> but it went, no, no, no. Across Paul's canon. He understands what 
the enemy, the devil, is trying to do and the various strategies he employs to do that so he can say in shorthand. So because we're not unaware of his schemes and to be like, you know, Devakishus the Druid walks into Rome. Unfortunately, Paul was not going to be born for another several decades. So he couldn't be there to go, well, we're not unaware of the enemy's schemes. I mean, this guy's here to try to make a lot of people die in miserable ways. Like, that's what the enemy wants. So let's not do that. Mm-hmm. As the friends of Jesus, there is, I think, a certain alertness, sobriety in First Peter. And he's talking about, you know, suffering and what it does. He goes, therefore, be, be sober-minded and alert. Sometimes people translate it. These words are hard to translate. Or he goes, you know, be clear-minded and sober. They, they flip them. And I've seen it self-controlled. But yes, be self-controlled. The self-controlled one relates to drunkenness. So, like, mm. literally be under your own power. The be clear-minded one, I really like that one. It's the same word. It's like a sophron something. Soph obviously being wisdom, but it having this massive weighty dimension, mm. you know, be sophron than the Greek, the rest of the Greek word. Sorry, theology students. And we're like, if there's a philosopher, like a lover of wisdom, like you be deeply and profoundly wise so that you can shepherd your own soul so that you can give people good advice so that you can not fall into the traps that the enemy is laying. Mm. You know, the re-spiritualization of the world, man, that, that is a complicated landscape to navigate, to figure out who right. are these people and what is it that they want? Right. And that's not a hypothetical. It's like, that's your setting. That's where you exist now. And you need to be able to navigate those waters. Is that why you were talking about Mount Carmel earlier? Just to point out like, hey, the history of mankind, the history of the planet itself is riddled with spiritual focal points like lightning rods. Or was there a different reason for Mount Forbidden? Mount Forbidden, Mount Karam. Karam. Yes. So one hypothesis about the reason that Jesus transfigured there was to pick a fight. Mm. And to go to one of the most old, nastily spiritual sites, literally on the planet, and go, boom. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Because, wow, it would be a long, interesting sidebar here. But probably most of the demons at this point still did not know exactly what was going on. Did not know that Jesus was Yahweh. Mm. That Yahweh had figured out this ingenious plan. He'd become a person. And Mm. when he transfigures, boom, and the glory of God is there on the mountain and the greatest of the prophets are there too. What a thing. It is a little bit of this spiritual, come at me. Mm. Here we go. I'm here. And then Jesus turns right after that to Jerusalem for the last time. And Mm. everything accelerates and gets really exciting. So we started there to go, Okay, you're on the road, you see the Forbidden Mountain, it's freaky. Oh, but actually Jesus is at war with those things and has disarmed and is now like reclaiming people. So you're equipped Mm. to handle all of this. Mm -hmm. This isn't like, oh man, now I'm so freaked out, crazy, or, or even, oh, what an interesting idea. (laughs) <laughs> Would that be like your least favorite takeaway? Oh my gosh. 
my least favorite, yeah, my least favorite takeaway would actually be, I just didn't quite get it. Like, mm. I'm looking to hone my prayer practices and my Sabbath rituals and good things, but that's just a little too out there for me. Mm. Going back to the Tokugawa church, go, hey, as a friend of Jesus, you have a Christian Meiji opportunity. It was like, guys, you really are living at a crazy time. You can learn how to operate in it really well, but you do have to ask God to teach you. I like to tell people about the second age of the sorcerer to tell them that the gunships are here. It's on, guys. Like, these are hard days on the human soul, indeed. Potentially very fragmenting. And Jesus, who picked a fight with these guys, transfigured in front of them and then defeated them, Mm. has everything you need. But you must ask him to teach you. 